Um, welcome to Emmaus Way. So good to see some new faces. I'm Molly, uh, the pastor of UA, and glad to have you here. Rody, one of our other pastors, um, is still at, out in Seattle, finishing her MFA um, two weeks out there, but she created this erasure poem for us as we look at absence. Rody is taking one of the each week we're looking at different texts. So she's taking one of those texts and creating an erasure poem with it. So hear now this call together. Take in your hand the wilderness, the water, the blood, all of it. Become whole. In the water, blood, drink and take heart. So glad all of you came on an afternoon when UNC is still playing and Duke uh, is supposed to tip off at 5.15. Um, so thanks so much for you all being here. So I um, am with the kids upstairs this week and really looking forward to that. Ben and Suze are leading down here. And you may have noticed that the order is a bit different than most weeks. And throughout Lent, we um, have been taking away or ch changing something within our worship gathering. So we're fasting from snacks and coffee and water. Rather than a um, passing of the peace, we're having a guided meditation. Our open table is in the center. And tonight, we're starting to play around with the absence of order, including the order of our worship gathering. Um, it's going to be a great night. It's going to be a great night upstairs. We have a lot of fun things as we talk about light and dark with the kids and have some glow-in-the-dark paint. And Ben and Suze are going to take it away with confession to begin. In the time of my confession, in the hour of my deepest need when the pool of tears beneath my feet flood every newborn sea there's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere toiling in the day Like criminals 
So thanks guys for being here in this trifecta night. Not only is the UNC game carried over into this moment and Duke playing, but it is the first weekend of Durham Public Schools spring break and it is also a very lovely spring day. So each of your presence here means that much more. Um, so we're gonna sit together tonight, as Molly said, in this Lenten season in our lack um, and more particularly in absence um, so I think it's good, it's, yeah, thanks to Suze for being present throughout Lent and filling some of these awkward spaces as we shuffle staff members around and doing that as sort of our first foray into having a resident artist for a season, not just a week. And so I think that you'll see if you haven't already seen that. Yeah, through these weeks, Suze's voice is extremely integrated and I wanna say too that there's a group of folks that met this morning and have been meeting on Sunday mornings to do songwriting as spiritual formation and Bible study and that, that all these things are sort of percolating together. So I hope that you'll reach out for some of those threads. There's been a weekly email going out as well with some, what would you call it? A meditation, a devotion from that class. So opportunities to tile that stuff together. But in this Lenten season, we've been asking ourselves what's missing, what's gone, what's been taken, what is devoid, what longed for thing is hidden from our lives 
with each other in this God-gifted world, as Lent gives us the cause to do. And we've reflected on some of those absences, and they seem to come so readily to our conversation in the past couple of weeks. We're, we're sitting in absence, if, if our conversation is any indication. And so what fills the space when we set aside distractions of power, as we looked at with Jesus in the wilderness, or as you talked about last week when I was upstairs with the kids, when we lose the comfort and security of home. This week, we are headed a bit backwards from last week's journey with the Israelites in the wilderness to the story that launched that journey. It's the story of God hearing the cries of oppressed Israel, responding with systematically miraculous action. Ten escalating plagues that seem to carefully dismantle the Egyptian empire's sense of authority and replace it with God's authority. And in short, it's a story of freedom emerging from a deliberate but total absence of order. And so we're looking at that absence of order in our dialogue tonight. And as we're continuing to absence, reckon with absences in our worship, gathered worship together, we have sort of reshuffled our usual pattern. Normally we'd end with confession and absolution and find ourselves at the table, but now we turn to the table sitting in confession still awaiting absolution before our dialogue together. And so I invite you into a space um, that the Israelites may have recognized amid this thoroughly plagued story. Before the Red Sea parted, after the Nile ran red with blood, after the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the locusts, after the darkness, even as God prepared to slay every living firstborn thing in all Egypt. Sheltered they were and yet powerless amidst total disorder and awaiting the culmination of a terrible deliverance. And God bid them come around a table and said, this is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And we're certainly no Israelites. This Passover ritual of God's chosen people is not ours to simply claim, and yet every week, as our brother Jesus taught his disciples, joining Christian communities from that distant time until today, we come around God's table. And today I invite you here in the middle of things to this table, a table set for us with the body and blood of God's firstborn. A table that finds us in the midst of confession, in deep need, choked by lost time and so much indulgence, innocence fractured, stumbling through our lonely dances together and calls us together as God's beloved and says that we do not get to order God's world, but we can through God's grace be one again with God and each other. And it's been our practice at Emmaus Way to celebrate that table together, serving each other, pouring wine and a brown pitcher or green our juice and a green pitcher for each other, saying the peace of God, the love of God, the body and blood of Jesus for you, 
And in looking at each other and in serving each other, we are enacting the different reality that God has brought to bear and that this table brings to bear in our life together. So I say all that to invite you to the table here in this curious space in the middle of things. I might say, um, eat it hurriedly, but also take your time. But we will, Susan's gonna be calling us back with music. So as you come and serve each other, take your time, enjoy each other as we always do. We often call it a rowdy table, but it will only get to be rowdy for so long tonight. So that will be different. So please welcome to the table, come, and Suze will call us back when it is time. Come and mourn with me a while. Oh, come now to the Savior's side. Come together, let us mourn. Jesus, our love is crucified. And we shed no tears for him. While scoffers scoff and foes deride ah, Look how patiently he hangs Jesus our love is crucified Seven times he spoke seven words of love And all three hours his silence cried for mercy on the souls of all, Jesus our love is crucified. O love of God, O sin-filled world, in this dread act your strength is tried, and victory remains with love. Jesus, our love is crucified. We're half awake in a fake empire. We're half awake in a fake empire. Picking apples, making pies Put a little something in our lemonade And take it with us We're half awake in a fake empire We're half awake in a fake empire through our shiny city with our diamond slippers on do our gay ballet on eyes bluebirds on our shoulders we're half awake in a fake empire we're half awake in a fake 
So like Ben said, we've had a songwriting class going on Sunday mornings, and that has been great. Uh, about six of your fellows um, have been getting together every Sunday morning of Lent to learn a little about songwriting, to practice a little songwriting. Um, we've been having a really good time. But in preparation for this week, uh, we were just talking about music, not lyrics. And I was doing some reading in a collection of um, interviews and collected speeches of a composer named Arvo Part. He's Estonian. He's very, very old. I don't know. And uh, in one of his speeches that he gave upon receiving an award, he talks about the order, the order of the world as it pertains to music. And in this speech, he talks about how what he, one of the things that he loves about the power of music is that when you when you break it apart to its smallest particle, all of the particles of music are of the same material. And that all of composition is pulling those base, that base material that is all the same at its root and organizing it and ordering it in different ways to give it meaning and to lend it beauty and to make it passionate. Um, and that there is no such thing as forsaking part of the material to lift up the other part of the material. Uh, it is all about it is all about organizing what is always there. And so uh, in this conversation of order, uh, I also picked a song that was brought up in class by, uh, in our songwriting class, that kind of tries to wrestle with this idea of a God that orders, but that order is not about um, suppressing some parts, that it is about lifting everything up into its place so that it can be beautiful and purposeful and appreciated. So. I play the teacher, the preacher, guru, maintaining posture, separating me and you, as if the thoughts of God were mine and mine to speak. I've listened with an agenda so I can prove All of the shit I believe to be true Just to hide the fear of being weak Burn the scorecards, balance out the scales We are one wind distracted by our different sails Underneath what's detectable with eyes Every particle's vibrating with the same light If we keep running round deciding who's right and wrong Then tell me where are we headed How can we all belong when all our logic is colliding And it's constantly dividing me from eager protestations on your tongue shut up your brain long enough to hear the lowly hum 
underneath what's detectable with eyes Every particle's vibrating with the one light Beyond the land of the right, beyond the land of the wrong There's a field waiting for us All the notions of you, all the notions of me We finally agree don't mean a thing beyond the land of the right beyond the land of the wrong there's a field waiting for us all the notions of you all the notions of me we finally agree don't mean a thing burn the scorecards balance out the scales we are one wind distracted by our different sails underneath what's detectable with eyes every particle's vibrating with the same light so if i'm down rudy and molly so this is a pretty good ad. Um, I want to say a few things to start off. First of all, you can all rejoice as best as I can tell you and see has triumphed. So if you're going to go home and watch that game, I'm sorry, Elizabeth. I mean, yeah, I think you're probably, yeah. Oh, okay, very good. See, yeah, you're half awake. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, I just want to point out that the last time that it was planned, I did stand in for Molly on short notice once, but it was planned that I would sit down and do the dialogue was Super Bowl Sunday. And there's something going on with being like the male on staff that it's like somehow, yeah, it's like aligning for me. Or Molly has a secret plan where I do like the, the really, the biggest sporting event, I'm telling you, the next time is what would it be, right? It would be, yeah, what? Yeah, the, the Kentucky Derby, says Susan from Kentucky. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's always right around my birthday. That's how I remember that one. Oh, boy. So, yeah, good to have you here tonight. And this will be a night where I think every voice in the dialogue matters. Um, I just want to maybe gauge first, and it, it, let's, let's say scale of 1 to 10. How familiar are you with the story of what God and the Israelites and the Egyptians are up to in like Exodus 7 through 12 or so. The plagues, like five, like give me, give me fingers, right? Like scale of one to 10. It's a lot of sevens, eights, eights. Okay, wow, this is a pretty good Sunday school crowd, right? So what, what I found was that like I knew a lot about the story and then I went to it and like, you know, really spent time. It's like it unfolds over quite a decent, you know, set of space and like read through from the beginning of Exodus. And it, it sits similarly, but also differently than I remember in certain ways. So I want to acknowledge, so you had Brody's erasure poem there. You have some notes from Soaks from Sousa's class who are engaging this text this morning. And then what I gave you was a sample that comes Sort of, sort of near the end, this is narrating the seventh plague going into God leading towards the eighth plague. Um, but I want us to, somebody to read this text 
that I put in the bulletin, and then, but I also want to like spend some time just quickly recapping, like, okay, what's 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 going on here? Because I think I'm speaking less about inviting us less into this particular text in some ways than I am to like this narrative, this like ten plague, what begins and goes through and follows. So, who wants to take on this hefty dose of Exodus? Then the Lord said to Moses. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you yourself, and upon your officials, and upon your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I have let you live, to show you my power, and to make my name resound in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Tomorrow at this time I will cause the heaviest hail to fall that has ever fallen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Sin, therefore, and have your livestock and everything that you have in the open field brought to a secure place. Every human or animal that is in the open field and is not brought under shelter will die when the hail comes down upon them. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried their slaves and their livestock off to a secure place. Those who did not regard the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the open field. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that hail may fall on the whole land of Egypt, on humans and animals, and all the plants of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire came down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. There was hail with fire flashing continually in the midst of it. Such heavy hail as had never fallen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the open field throughout all the land of Egypt, both human and animal. The hail also struck down all the plants in the field and shattered every tree in the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sent. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord. Enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You need stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hell, so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your officials, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city, and stretched out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured down on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned once more and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart, the heart of his officials, in order that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I have made fools of the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. Thanks, Clinton. Admirably done. Um, so, yeah, the first, the first question I'll throw out is, what's here in this particular text that, like, strikes your memory in a different way. Oh, I didn't remember that exactly happening in that way, or I didn't recall that detail, or this is, and also, like, what are we missing from the broader story that would seem to maybe illuminate, that's important to consider as we're looking at this particular set of 20 voices. So what's here that strikes you, and what's not here that we need to keep in mind? I thought I remembered this story pretty well, and I did not remember God's active agency in hardening the heart of the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
others. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I did choose this because that so stuck out to me. Like, oh, right. Like, there's this internal wrestling. God's holding Pharaoh at bay to do this elaborate demonstration of God's work. But the officials are kind of stuck in the middle here, right? They're, they're reckoning on their own with what's going on with this new God being presented. And the implication here is that some of them are, are yeah, lining up on the side of the Israelites, at least out of self-interest. I wonder if they escaped having their sons killed. Yeah, yeah. The most of the, as I recall, like most of the other plagues are not nearly so specific, right? This is for, this is first of all the long. The seventh one takes the longest verses, and we get that interesting detail that we don't see elsewhere. Surprising things here. Other things we should. So I'll add one more, which is that in this seventh plague, there's, I think you get here some sense, there really is an unfolding. These 10 plagues are not, they do, they do not come across as, when you consider them together as, okay, God had a plan and I'm going to like poke Pharaoh 10 times and the 10th time he's going to, no, it's, this is all, it has much more a sense of orchestration about it in terms of what is being laid out. Like we're, we're starting with the Nile, which is the Egypt's power center, right? The systematic, it's going to be water and then it's going to be air and then it's going to be dust. And there's, there's kind of a systematic quality to the way these plagues are being unfolded that I think r this really sits within. My like Sunday school recollection of the story, right? My my like child's view of it is, oh yeah, no, the Israelites are in prison, so God frees them by convincing Pharaoh with all these. This uh, does not say that. This says, you know, so that I may, uh, so I have made fools of the Egyptians, right? It's it is a much more, you could say orchestrated, you could say addictive, but like a very planned assault on their power and authority, but also just their, I don't know the right word, their, their like presence as humans. It is to deride them and make fools of them. We were just talking about order, and this seems very well ordered, and mm -hmm. I really appreciate what you said about order, that, you know, sometimes we can think about that maybe as being something that is to like be controlling, but perhaps it's not at all. Um, and this whole thing ends with, so that you may know I am God, or the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I think about order in that context, it sort of puts a different spin on it. Yeah. Thanks, Brooke. Yeah, I, I didn't remember that the part about Moses, like, raising his hand and starting it, you know, being the starting time I always thought of the plague as being something that God sent when he was ready and you know, like everybody was on the receiving end. Yeah. There's this really, I mean, I'm thinking it's March Madness, right? But there's almost like a coach and players kind of, kind of metaphor going on here. Every plague 
you know, God, God pulls Moses and Aaron back and says, all right, guys, here's what I'm going to do next. It's going to be like this, and you're going to go and you go tell him. And they go and tell him, and Pharaoh does his part. And he's like, all right, Pharaoh responds, and, the, and God says, all right, and this is what he's... So there's this sort of back and forth with Aaron and Moses as middlemen in this really cosmic conversation between God and Pharaoh. Yeah, or that's, that's kind of how it comes across, right? There's a lot of narrating of what God is telling Aaron and Moses to go do and say next. So let me maybe, to take Brooke's comment and what Sue said earlier, I wonder about what, I ask the question of what's happening in this text, maybe when we consider something like suppressing order versus an elevating order. Because I would say like there's a lot of disorder surrounding the events of this text, but also, yeah, there's a sense of order. So if you put those two next to each other and hold it up to this text, Suppressing order versus L are different ways that order or disorder is playing into this text. Well, I mean, this was a this was a crisis. This this destroyed their agricultural base for months. Yeah. You know, we would have had um, food aid brought in, and yeah. the president would have declared a state of emergency. Blah 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 blah. Um, this was a huge economic hit, so there's lots of chaos in this world. And whether you're thinking of it as, a, as an ordered thing or chaos, the majority of the humans involved have no control, right? <laughs> They're either on the receiving end of the order or on the receiving end of the chaos, but the humans are... are not yeah. This is a story with a lot of human characters, and none of them are particularly important to the narrative as it's, you know, like, I was always like, who's the narrator here? And it's always like, it's kind of Moses, but also not really Moses, right? He's just like got the speaking part. Anyone else orders, types of order? Well, there's like the very, the, the playing with the laws of nature thing is also really interesting, right? Like turning water into blood. Yeah. That's not just like a, like a usual act of God. Yeah. yeah. That, and that this is something that Rhodey said, and I think that the kids, um, well, last week when we were upstairs, we were looking at one of the examples, they're talking about darkness, and we looked at, the ninth plague as one example of that. And one thing, they were really struck, Gail, by like, I was like, okay, let's imagine, can, can we imagine, kids, a darkness that is so thick we can like touch it and perceive it and that lasts for three days and we literally can't do anything. Like it's tough to get our heads into that type of imagination, for one thing. And then another thing that Rhody had talked about in our staff conversation was, there is this sense of reverse echo here with the creation narrative, right? That's that not that much further where God very deliberately over a period of days creates the world and populates it with animals. And, and in, in many ways, there's a sort of reversal, particularly when you get to that ninth plague and all of a sudden, now I'm gonna take away light. And so it's, it's pointed at the Egyptians, but there's also an echo here 
in the way the story is being told to what Israel's narrative, what their narrative of God, how God created order is being, God is choosing to disorder what God has created. Yeah. Let's keep reflecting, sitting in this text before we move to more of an interpretive lens. Empires. I threw this fake empire. I, I have the, this one is, is in my mind a lot, you know, as you watch things unfold. It certainly, uh, yeah, half awake feels like a good description of a lot of our discourse and a lot of where we find ourselves. But fake empire and what is fake and that. But I think that I throw that song, I th suggest that song to Sue's thinking about like, here we have an empire. So if we're going to look at that, we've got, we've got God, we've got Israel, there's a cosmic, divine uh, level to the story, but there's also God is intervening in a political order, a social order, a, a geographic power base. So if we sit in this and say, I look at this in terms of empires, what's, what's going on here? Just to throw that lens at the text quickly. To sort of tie empire back to order and disorder, right? The act of forming an empire, the act of running an empire is imposing your will upon the world, right? Imposing a, a sense of order. And like reading this is, I think, hard sometimes to wrap, at least for me, wrap my head around and compare this to sort of the, you know, the Jesus that I'm normally like sitting arm to arm with. I'm like the nice guy, right? And this is not the nice guy. Um, but when I, I've been thinking about it a lot today, and when I think about it, that that, uh, that imposition of order, right, is being, again, dismantled, removed, um, you know, in, in the same way that, that the Egyptians have made slaves of the Israelites, God is like, you, you have no real power, this is, this is power, you know, you are all yeah. servants. Um, yeah, the, the, the idea of fake empire is funny one here because it, I think it's, I think the story shows that empire is artificial and fake and not an actual order, but only an assumed one. Yeah, there's an artifice. It, certainly at the end of the story, Egypt looks artificial in a way that it's probably hard to imagine. There's an eye opening for the Israelites, right? You're sitting amidst oppressed amidst this powerful state, and then this unfolds. It's a pretty dramatic shift in narratives, um, and who's, who's in control. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Egypt was the most powerful empire of the time, I believe, you know, to that history, and also when you compare Jesus to the Roman Empire, we have this narrative of, you know, first he, he takes over the most powerful empire, and then next he kind of submits to it, so it's interesting. Juxtaposition there. Yeah. And they're temporary as well. That question of how God situates God's self against empire and the and the methods that God uses, the 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 terms of engagement that God chooses. This is yeah, this is that classic old New Testament. Like these are really fundamentally different ways of going about that confrontation and that set of questions. I'm currently chewing on the heart of man, mm -hmm. and what came up for me was that pride is rooted in fear, mm -hmm. and fear, at least for me, often manifests 
manifest itself in the desire to have control mm -hmm. and order. Mm -hmm. And so then I think about the fake empire part, right? The fake empire of the heart of man, right? Mm -hmm. Is so I might look like I have my stuff together, mm -hmm. but it might be coming or manifesting out of really fear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And my need to try and yeah. put it all together. Yeah. That really resonates, yeah, with me. And so much of, when I was thinking about this and mulling it, okay, I'm going to have to talk about the plagues and what I'm going to do. And the more I wrestle with this, and we had sort of chosen this text as a way to grapple with a lack of order, an absence of order. But the more I've sat with it, it's like this is not, it is an absence of order. It's disorder, but it's control, right? This is a God asserting God's self powerfully up against Egypt's notion probably Israel's notion, the entire born world at that time's notion of how the pantheon of gods and how political and physical power worked. And this is a multi-part narrative, God dismantling that idea and asserting God's control over human control. And when I think about that, it's like, okay, what do, we do, what do I do with my desire for control. And here's, I think last week Molly might have asked something, like, what do we do with a withholding God? Looking at Moses and the fact that Moses was not ultimately gonna enter home. And so I think this is a good question for this week. What do we do with our need for control? And what do we do up against that, that up against a controlling God? So what are we to make of a controlling God, like the one we see in this text. Well, if you're sitting in the seat of the people who are oppressed and don't have control, it's good news, right? That the, that the people who are oppressing you and exerting undue control of your life don't have the final word, that, that they will ultimately lose control. Um, but, I mean, you know, that doesn't speak in my particular circumstances, right? right. But, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about the world and the people who have the least control, those are, it's, it's probably good news to them that God is a controlling God. Yeah, the question of perspective is a, was a tricky one in this type because I think that there's, there's an interpretive tradition, there's an easy, for any reader, right? We look for the hero and we sign ourselves, right? So, okay, we're gonna be the Israelites in the story. And yet, if you're trying to do the trickiness of figuring out how this story applies to the situation we find ourselves in, maybe the Israelites isn't really the quickest uh, equation that we might make. And yet, are, are we exactly the Egyptians? There's, there's polytheism and our, there's, there's a lot of complications here, but I think it forces us to wrestle with that question of positionality. To, what, what, in what way is this good news and to whom? Well, I think God's power relative to this amazing Egyptian empire power, the fact that God is able to demonstrate his power, you know, when I look at the pyramids or, or everything, how big this empire was, I would think, oh, wow, nothing could take that down, you know? That's just it, and it'll be that way forever. But then God comes and says, no, 
There's a lot left in the wake of this narrative, right? Yeah. That's like the game of chance. Right. And then, yeah, the, there's a real, re- with the, yeah, what do we do with the fact that from fairly early on in this story, we're told that God is withholding Pharaoh's own good judgment for the purpose of demonstrating God's power in a manifest way. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not just a controlling God who's got our back. It's a controlling God who has a really specific purpose that he is going to, like, contravene against at least the will of Pharaoh. And I, that's why I do like having the officials in there and having some, like, sense of wrestling with that. But it's, it's not clear. And perhaps as officials are where we find, like, what does this mean for us? Mm. What does this mean in Dharma? Mm. Right? That... That perhaps we need to, like their officials, recognize, hey, we're all in this together. Like this, this plague you know, that is hitting this place um, is not just affecting people who have less control than I. Right. We're all in this together. And, yeah. yeah, I like, and plagues, right? Hard to like one to one. Plagues. I mean, we've got some hurricanes, right? Like we've seen some cataclysm in the recent past of, of one kind and another, but it's really hard for me to sit in this text and not in some way go, well, if there are plagues being borne out in the 21st century, I, I, I'm probably understanding that I've got a role to play in these more than they're just God delving out, um, yeah, acts of God. Yeah. And the officials are sitting in that middle space of like having participated in the oppressive mechanism that God is now disordering and yet also are not in the position that Pharaoh is to sort of acquiesce and, and end it in any way. Yeah. I'm also thinking about how disorder can be a great equalizer. Because, like, so I was thinking about like, hurricanes, and so, you know, maybe very wealthy people and people who are not so wealthy. And when everything is wiped out for both of them, they're pretty much created equal. Mm. And so, how does disorder and chaos and oppression kind of equalize? Mm. And what is God's role in that? I think that's a great segue into a question we've been trying to ask every week, and I think this is a really tricky, for people that are pretty good at recognizing absence in our lives, the trickier question that we're trying to propose together in this Lenten season is saying, there is going to be absence, 
And when there is absence, in this case, when there is an absence of order, when we find ourselves faced with a lack of control, what kind of thing, what kind of possibility, what kind of presence fills that space? So maybe that's a good question to, to sit here as we move towards the end of our discussion. What could fill the space that arises for us in an absence of control? I think like a really good Sunday school answer was Jesus. Right. <laughs> but, but apart from that obvious one, um, I think something I've been thinking a lot about in thinking, wrestling with this myself is um, awareness and self-awareness and where is my desire to control manifesting itself and kind of rearing its head and kind of sitting in a contemplative space and like what does that look like because I'm not that um, I'm not a sit still kind of person and so feeling like I am in a space in my life where that's necessary um, it's requiring a lot of contemplation and awareness when I want to leap into something um, and choosing not to yeah, that sense of faced with the absence of one way, the quick reversion is, all right, well, we're going the other way. And yeah, that contemplative lens that, yeah, some folks even call the third way that says, no, you don't have to pick one. You can, yeah. Anyone else? Where you find space, where you find a different sort of presence, amidst an absence of control. So when I'm not in control, I often feel like I'm in a free fall. Mm-hmm. And that is a fun for me. Yeah. But the verse that I've been contemplating some is, what is it to be in him, to, you know, live and move and have my being mm-hmm. in him? What does that really look like, even if I'm a free fall? Yeah, this phrase in this song that Sue's brought to us, I think from the songwriting class, from a conversation in the songwriting class, right? But yeah, every particle's vibrating with the same life. You know, in some sense, if all, if God has created God's world and God is manifest in it, if we are able to know God and be present with God and the spirit is in us, what does that mean when I find myself at wit's end? Yeah. It has to be good news but it always doesn't immediately sound like good news. Yeah. Well, I want to end then um, by sharing a story that in wrestling with these questions on the absence of control, um, with this text, with a God who disorders God's world to make his greatness known, uh, that I've been turning this story over and over in my head. Um, this past Tuesday, I attended a vigil for Michael Bullock. Those of you who don't know, the other half of my vocation is with Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham. Um, One of the things we do is hold vigils, usually at the site where homicides have happened in Durham. Michael was killed just under a year ago on Umstead Street, just a block off Fayetteville. 
Uh, and we gathered there on a dusty corner in front of the house where authorities found Michael. And we, the sun was going down, still pretty cold, but we were there together. I went alongside, the coalition went alongside our friends, Alan and Dave, both of whom are pastors and whose peculiar ministry means knowing well, a street that is otherwise very easily forgotten. And we went there with a peculiar sense of purpose as the coalition because our commitment is to ignore none of the community's blood calling up from the ground. Because to all usual reckoning, um, more than even the vast majority of homicides in Durham, I would say, Michael's death was as overlookable as the place that he died. This is a place in our city, it's neatly walkable to where I live actually, um, and where I live is a very nice place, um, but it's caught between our sense of neighborhoods, right? This is not a neighborhood, this is a weird space between neighborhoods. I've heard so many folks talk about it that way. It is a place where, to understand my friend Dave, paramedics come often to respond to one overdose or another, but they generally, all, almost always, wait for the police to arrive first. And as we gathered, there is a group. Uh, in so many other contexts, this group would look idyllically odd. Two dozen or so community and church folks, white and black. We did not look like a normal group of people that gathered together on any street corner. We had that going for us. Um, even some folks who knew Michael from the church, he'd been walking some ways to attend over the last few years. And there was a great deal that was just really beautiful about it. We were giving, as we always try to do, unbidden honor, too often unbidden honor, to one of God's own, and naming him as ours, a member of our community, shedding the third person and saying, in death we will grant you what our community as a whole seems so unwilling or unable to grant you in life. And that was really, really beautiful. And we neighbors who came and gathered together there were met by the neighbors who never leave that no man's place where they are. And they spoke first. And they had some hard things to say to us. I'm paraphrasing. You don't know and you can't imagine what we go through here on Dawkins Street. You don't know what it feels like to be literally looked over and away from when you pass. You don't know what it means to be assumed that an object of pity or disgust just because of the way that you look. To what it means to be a target for begrudging handouts, even if you're just trying to say hello. You don't know also, because you're not here, you don't know what we have. You don't know who we are together. You don't know how we care for one another. And most powerfully, for all us church people, and I think that's the role we were filling, we trust and depend on and delight in and pray to the same Jesus you do. You may think yourselves better than us, beyond us, but your God is our God really specifically, really forcefully, 
That was the message from multiple mouths to the gathered crowd before we really even got talking about Michael. It had to be said first. And it was a beautiful and a powerful vigil. They always are. This one was especially so to me. And these hard truths were where we began and they weren't where we ended. But that is precisely what I'm turning over and over and what I may never forget about that vigil. Emmaus Way friends, our neighbors were telling us, they were telling me, truth be told, reminding every one of us here, I think they just didn't have a chance to say it to your face, for all the control you may feel, for all the systems you have ordered seem to control and dismiss us, you do not control our God. And so the question I leave us with tonight that I can't get out of my head is, what freedom is waiting for them in a God we do not control? And what freedom is waiting for us in the absence of a God that we imagine our control of that controls them? As we're wrestling together this Lent with absence and what fills the space of absence, I think that there are presences there that we do not readily imagine. And to reflect on them is to reflect on where God shows up, where we did not expect God to be, in spaces that we very much do not control. So I want to invite Suze up to lead us into a time of guided meditation, which is how we're sort of <coughs> filling a space we often use to pass the peace during Lent and to end us in absolution. In this time of meditation, I invite you to let it be a time of rest. Uh, let it be a time of rest for your body, to be comfortable, um, whatever posture you've been kind of unconsciously sitting in for the last 45 minutes, let it loosen. <clears throat> let your feet be on the ground, let your hands rest. And let this also be a time uh, for you to rest your mind. Um, the thoughts that drive us crazy. Um, the thoughts that drive us outside of the moment and outside of our body and outside of our community. Um, I would invite you to let that part of your brain rest as we meditate on order. And as you settle into your body and you get in touch with your breath. Notice the boundaries of your body. Where do you meet the chair? Where do your feet meet the floor? Become aware of where your skin touches your clothing. and all of the places where you cannot feel that contact. Bring the boundaries of this room into your awareness. 
that the air is still, that there is no breeze. The soft light that means that the sun is somewhere else. Hear the immediacy of the creaks and the ticks and the breaths in this room. Hear the sounds outside of this room, the muffled sound of traffic, the muffled sound of children. Consider the God of creation separating night from day. And then water from dry land. And then vegetation of all types and kinds, flowers, trees, plants that bear fruit, plants that cover the ground like a blanket. And then separating again, species from species, things that swim from things that fly, making all creatures of the earth distinct. See them in their sizes and shapes and colors and textures and functions and appetites. Consider the order and the boundaries that create a whole world of differences to be admired, enjoyed, enjoined in purpose. We pray, O oh Lord, grant us the grace to grow deeper in our respect and care for your creation. Help us to recognize the sacredness of all of your creatures as signs of your wondrous love. Soften the hearts of the rich and the powerful to turn from destruction and honor the balance of the natural world. Help us to turn our own hearts from the selfish consumption of resources meant for all and to see the impacts of our choices on the poor and the vulnerable. Consider now the God of the Israelites, setting these people apart to receive land, promise, and blessing. Consider the forces of the world that pushed and pulled them this way and that, and the boundary that God draws for them. Have no other gods before me. Do not create gods for yourselves. Embrace what you are. Do not serve at the pleasure of death and destruction. Consider the story about one people that is a story for all people, 
about being set apart. Not nation against nation, but the life-seeking against the death-dealing. Consider how division has run rampant in our hearts and minds, and how disorder and inequity fill the, fuel the chaos of war, the violence of becoming our own judges, our own jury, our own executioners. We pray, loving God, you inspire us with love for all persons and concern for the well-being of all creation. Give us today the strength and courage to transform the compassion of our hearts into acts of peace, mercy, and justice. Forgive us for the arrogance that leads to blindness, for desires for vengeance and retaliation, and for willingness to sacrifice others for our own security and avarice. Help us to renounce all forms of violence, prejudice, intolerance, injury, and willful ignorance. Give us the courage to resist threatening postures, calls to arms, mobilization of troops and weapons, and all actions that threaten the lives and livelihoods of innocent people. Empower us to live out the caring presence of the merciful and generous persons we claim to be. Make us channels of your peace, bearers of healing, people who hear and readily respond to pleas for justice in our world. And consider now the God, the God who knit you together in the womb. She is there in her rocking chair, letting the yarn run through her fingers considering herself what it might become. She carefully counts every stitch, lovingly weaving her attention and intention into every fiber. Consider the wonder of your body and mind, the nervous system that communicates volumes in the blink of an eye, the fragility of these narrow veins, a hundred thousand miles of blood vessels, the thin skin that holds us together. We pray for those weighed down by ill health, bring wholeness to body, mind, and spirit. For those weighed down by worry, bring wisdom, peace, and reassurance. For those weighed down by fear, bring freedom, release, and liberation. For those weighed down by sadness, bring comfort, strength, and joy. For all whose hearts are troubled at the start of the day, be the voice that they hear, be the warmth that they feel, the wisdom they seek, and the strength they require, and the one in whose arms they rest. Amen. And I invite you now to help me break the silence. 
to you tonight. You fearfully, wonderfully made. You so unfit to be your own judge. You who want so desperately to be enough and will never be enough. You are enough in a God. A God that knows your secrets, knows oh so many dark hidden parts knows what you can control and the things you will never control. 
I bid you go in peace in the light of that God who we cannot control and expecting help from places we did not expect and expecting spaces to open up in the midst of what looks just simply absence to us. Go in peace. This table's open as always it is if you'd like some more bread, wine, or yeah, to gather with each other. There's a Duke score, I'm sure, available somewhere on some device you own.